Welcome to this special midweek edition of the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. If this is your first time to listen, be sure to connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this message from our Wednesday night series. I told you he'd do a good job. And a great song for the passage we're in tonight, Ephesians chapter 1. You'll be happy to know we're going to finish chapter 1. Some of you thought we'd never get out of there. I'd like to pause for a moment and pray. And I want you to think about those on the prayer list, not only those listed in the hospital today, but uh, there are a lot of people that have been on the prayer list a long time. And we need to... uh, lift them up. So would you join me now as we pray, and then we're going to look at God's Word. Thank you, Lord, for a moment to pause, be together, fellowship with believers, and to come together collectively to ask that you pray, that you meet the needs that are of our prayers today. We have a lot of people that need physical healing, those in the hospital, those who have been suffering a long time. Those who are near death, we pray that you would be very special and close to them, that they might sense your, your closeness and the assurance of your presence there. Uh, Lord, I know there are probably a lot of people here tonight who, who are carrying some burdens that no one else knows about. And so we ask that you would touch their lives and encourage them and help them, give them wisdom And even tonight, as we look at your word, that you would open up our understanding and speak to our hearts. We know your spirit who lives in us will touch us in different ways. And so we pray that you would help us now as we look at your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken mentioned getting your tongues tied. I've... I'm going to tell you, if you've ever done any public speaking, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen to you. It's when. And it happens more than once. And those of you who've known me for the last 100 years know that uh, it's pretty frequent with me. But I did hear some funny things one time. I remember a youth pastor I had who got his tongue tied in church and said, let's bow our words for a head of prayer. (laughs) And also... This is the truth. Um, Man was praying, and he was trying to say, and Lord, forgive us of our shortcomings, or maybe talking about uh, coming up short. But here's what he said. Dear Lord, we ask that you forgive us for our falling shorts. (laughs) Now, I got to confess to you, I did not hear much of the rest of that prayer. (laughs) I read of an overweight businessman who decided it was time to shed some excess pounds. So he took his new diet seriously, even changing his driving path to work so he would avoid a certain bakery that he loved to stop by. And one morning, however, he arrived at work and he brought in this giant coffee cake and his friend scolded him, but his smile remained there. He said, this is a very special coffee cake. He said, I accidentally drove by the bakery this morning, and there in the window were a host of goodies, and I felt it was no accident. So I prayed, Lord, if you want me to have one of these delicious coffee cakes, let me have a parking place directly in front of the bakery. 
And sure enough, the eighth time around the block, there was a parking place. <laughs> a lot of us pray that way, don't we? And then I couldn't help but laugh when I read about a mother-in-law, actually a lady who was in her 40s, and she said, Lord, I'm not just asking for myself, but would you please give my mother a son-in-law? <laughs> Most of our prayers are concerning ourselves, and, and there's nothing wrong with that as far as praying and asking God for help. And we're talking, in fact, last Sunday we talked about praying for our daily needs and God providing for us. But, but this particular passage in chapter 1 is Paul mentions about praying for these believers. Now, I want to remind you that Ephesus was a place, he spent a long time there. And when he's writing this letter, he's in prison. And he writes back to them to remind him of a few things. And I've, I've told you that the first three chapters deal with a lot of doctrinal issues that we need to have correct. And then the last three chapters get very practical in nature about how to live because of the right doctrine. But in this, in this first chapter is the longest sentence, beginning in, chapter, in verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. And you can break that little passage down into three parts. It talks about what God has done for us in salvation what Jesus is doing for us in salvation, what the Holy Spirit is also, the future. So it's really the past, present, and future because it talks about God creating salvation, Jesus saving us, and the Holy Spirit sealing us for the day of redemption. And so you have all of that. And then he begins in verse 15 with the word, therefore. It's been a long time since I've said it, but anytime you see the word, therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? Because something's just been said in order for this point to be made. So he has all of this that he said that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit has done for us. And then he says, therefore, in verse 15, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your hearts or understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, Paul begins here by giving a word of commendation. He's affirming them. Therefore, refers back to all that we've been talked about, what Jesus has done for us. And it's been four years since Paul's been in Ephesus when he writes this, and now he's in prison. And he has heard the good reports that are going on at the church at Ephesus. Have you ever thought about what people hear about you and about me? 
You know, we want to give a good example. And if when people hear about Southcrest or they hear about your church or they hear about you, you ever think about what they might say? Because people are watching us whether we like it or not. I read about a middle-aged banker who fell in love with a lady much younger than he was, and he wanted to ask her to marry him, but he was afraid she was more interested in his money than in him. So, under an assumed name, he hired a private detective agency to check out the girl's background and to give him a detailed report on her activities. Well, after a careful investigation, the banker was given this report. Miss Jones, the report read, is a person of the highest character. But we are sorry to inform you that during the past few weeks, she has been seen frequently in the company of an older man of questionable reputation. <laughs> we need to realize what I think about what people say about us. I read of a pastor who was attending a conference that was out of town with two of his deacons from his congregation. And the first evening, the meeting did not finish until rather late. So they decided to have something to eat before going to bed. Unfortunately, the only place still open was sort of a seedy bar and grill with a questionable reputation. And after being served, one of the deacons asked the pastor to say the blessing or ask the blessing. And after, and when he was asked, the pastor said, I'd rather not. I don't want God to know I'm here. Paul heard two things about them. He said, I've heard about you. I make mention of you after I've heard two things. Did you notice, first of all, he says, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your faith. Now, the emphasis here is on their true saving faith with Jesus being the Lord of their life. He's not praising them for some supplemental faith that came later. He says, I'm hearing of people coming to Christ. I'm hearing of your faith in Jesus Christ. They had been saved. Isn't that always good to hear about someone? Aren't you thrilled when you find out, especially somebody that is a high-profile person, that you find out is a believer and they are very vocal in their faith. They're not ashamed. Uh, it's not just because it's convenient, but we find out about other people. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? They got saved. They followed Jesus. They've given their life to Christ. Paul's saying, I've heard of your faith, but he also said, I've heard of your love for their love. Christian love is indiscriminate. Listen, you may not like everybody you meet in the church or in the Lord, but that's different than loving him. Christ loves all of us. We're all exceptional. We're all exceptional to him. He, it doesn't matter where you've been. You've been forgiven. God loves you. The Lord loves you. Have you ever had anybody say, well, I love them in the Lord. <laughs> now, what does that mean? It, it basically says, I have no personal affection for them, but I'm going to tolerate them because I have to in the Lord. But folks, I want to tell you something. You can't spiritualize love, not the kind of love God has for us. 
that's not genuine love. To truly love a person in the Lord is to love him as the Lord loves him. Genuinely and sacrificially. First John 3.14 says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. One of the signs of, of your salvation First John mentions at least three proofs or signs of your salvation. Sometimes if you ever wonder if you've been saved or not, will you ask yourselves these three questions. First of all, do I habitually sin? I mean, if your life is characterized by sin, there's a problem. I know we all sin. Don't misunderstand me. But if your life is just characterized by that, the second thing is, if you don't have a love for the Word of God, if you don't want to know what God's Word has to say, then there's something wrong because a Christian wants to know what God has to say. And the third thing is, you're going to love the brethren. You're going to love His church. You're going to love God's people. Now, I know some of them are harder to love than others, but you're generally going to love God's people. You want to be with them. I've heard people say, well, you know, I love the Lord, but I don't love the church. Well, I'm going to say, you know, that's just kind of an oxymoron to me. Because you've got to, now, I, I know they've probably been hurt or burned somewhere in the church. But that doesn't mean you don't love God's people. 1 John 2, 9 tells us these two dimensions. He says, he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And as important as Bible study or, or theology, good theology, good doctrine is, it is no substitute for love. Because you can be doctrinally sound and hateful. Legalistic. True salvation produces love. And true love does not love with word or tongue, but indeed in truth. 1 John 3.18 says, we, Always in the New Testament, true spiritual love is defined as an attitude of selfless sacrifice that results in generosity and kindness toward other people. Church people. Not Christians, but church people can be mean. I've met some of them. Christians, on the other hand, they're going to be known by their love. You know why? Because we're all in the same boat. Have you been forgiven any more sin than I have? No. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're, we're here by the grace of God. And the kind of love that Ephesians had was for all the saints. But you know what's sad, though? Later, years later, John is writing the Revelation. And Jesus is walking among the churches. And what have the Ephesians lost? Their first love. Oh, they were doctrinally sound, and they didn't mess with the Nicolaitans. I mean, they were doctrinally sound, and they could put people in their place. But they, their love for the Lord had grown cold. And I want to tell you, it can happen if we're not careful. And the love that we have here, if we don't guard that and, 
and continue to work on it, we're going to be like the Ephesian church where Jesus said, I have this against you that you've left your first love. They'd lost their great love for Christ and their fellow believers, which only a few decades before Paul's writing, man, I've heard of your love and I've heard of your faith. I, I put an acrostic in there that's not a, original with me. Charles Lowry came up with it, but I thought it was good enough to, to, to share with you. Love, L-O-V-E, the L in love means you will listen. If you love someone, you want to pay attention to them and what they say to you is very important. We listen to one another. Zeke and May, and May had been married for over 70 years. The man was 101 years old. His wife was 99. One hot afternoon, they sat on the front porch rocking. The old man was nearly deaf. His wife looked over at him with admiration in her eyes and said, Zeke, I'm proud of you. He looked around and said, what's that you say, May? And she raised her voice, I'm proud of you. He looked away and said, I'm tired of you too, May. <laughs> we, do, we get in a lot of trouble when we don't listen to one another. Well, part of love is listening. That'll fit in your marriage too. But among believers, the O means that you overlook their faults, their limitations, their weaknesses, their shortcomings. The opposite of love is fault-finding. You know, it doesn't take a genius to find fault. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. You don't list all the wrongs that everybody's ever done to you. I had a man one time tell me his wife didn't, when they had a disagreement, didn't get hysterical. She got historical. <laughs> and the reason is she could bring up everything he'd ever done. Well, love doesn't get historical. It, you overlook a lot of that. The way to know that you truly do not love someone is if you keep a list of everything that that person did to you or you don't like. The V means that the person is valuable. You value that person. Why? Because they have value in God's eyes. There's not a, there's not a person that you come into contact with that does not have value the way that God sees us. You may think they're worthless. They may not dress like you. They might not act like you. They may irritate you. But according to God's perspective, they are valuable so we need to treat people with dignity and value. And then the E means you ought to encourage them. You can tear somebody down or you can build them up. And wouldn't it be a wonderful world and community and church if you concentrated on saying nice things to people, especially when you come in to together to fellowship? It, it, it doesn't take anybody long to you know what you can find negative everywhere you go but but what a, what a great place if you come in and know that people are going to speak encouragement to you do you ever get tired of being encouraged i mean have you ever finally just said would y'all quit talking to me i'm tired of being encouraged <laughs> not usually that way is it well, Paul praises them for their faith and love. And he says, I, 
he wrote the Ephesian letter. He, he said, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. I'm thankful for you. And he praises them for their faith and love. And then he moves to a wish for their comprehension to illuminate them. He affirms them. Now he's praying for illumination. The rest of the chapter is a petition that Paul is praying for them. I'm praying that this will happen for you. He said, I'm praying that you will really know who you are in Jesus Christ. Like Ken saying, he saved us that they might begin to have an idea of how magnificent and unlimited the blessings are that fall on you and me. Part of the problem of being in church, as long as a lot of us have been in church, we have a tendency to forget how blessed we are. We do. We take each other for granted until, until someone passes away and we don't have them anymore. And then we realize, oh, I wish I had... I wish I'd said more. I wish I'd have done more. And, and yet we can sit in week after week after week after week and we can hear things, but we begin to take for granted. It is tragic that many believers get entangled in trying to find something more in the Christian life. They talk about getting more of Jesus Christ or more of the Holy Spirit or more power or more blessings or a, a deeper life as if the resources of God, he divinely doles out a little bit at a time. Well, I'm here to tell you, he's already given you what you need. You already have it. You may have it tucked away in the closet, but you have it. You don't have to ask for more. Yet today, Christians spend a great deal of time and effort vainly looking for blessings that are already available, such as they pray for God's light, but they've already been supplied with light through his word. We just need to follow the light we already have. They pray for strength, although the God's word tells them that they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them, Philippians 4.13. They pray for more love, and although Paul says that God's own love is already poured out in their hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. They pray for more grace, although the Lord says the grace he has already given is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12.9. They pray for peace, although the Lord has given them his own peace, which surpasses all understanding and comprehension, Philippians 4, 7. So it's, it's expected that we pray for such blessings as if the tone of prayer is one of seeking this. We already have been given it. So he wants them to comprehend that. Now, he prays for several things. First, that they might have, and I've got a big word here for you, cognizance of God's person. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding, but let's go to verse 17 for a second. The spirit of wisdom is given through the Holy spirit. That is not synonymous with the Holy Spirit. You'll notice if you, it's, it's a little s, it's not capitalized in your English translation. It's not the Holy Spirit. The spirit of wisdom, pneuma, the, new, the word pneuma is the word spirit. 
It does not have the definite article. It's not the spirit. In other words, basically, it means influence or attitude. Have you ever used the term, they're in good spirits today? Or he's in high spirits today? Well, Paul is praying that their attitude would be good because of the wisdom, the fullness of godly knowledge. In other words, here's another way of saying it. I'm praying that you will know just what you have in Jesus what you already possess in your son. I'm praying in verse 17 I'm that you'll have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, the word revelation is God's imparting knowledge to him, whereas wisdom could emphasize the use of that knowledge. I've always said knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is acquiring new information. Wisdom is knowing how to apply that information to daily life. How do I take what God has revealed? How do I live that? That's wisdom. And he's, he's saying, I want you to know just what you have. And he's also praying that they might have a conception of God's provision to them. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your hearts. One of the text reads, Masoretic text reads, it's also translated understanding. It's the, the heart in this day was the, the, thought of as the seat of emotion. And we still do that. And we still speak that way. My heart's just not in it. I love you with all my heart. I feel in my heart this is the right thing to do. We still talk that way. And he's saying, I'm praying that you're understanding the, the ancient Hebrews and Greeks and others considered the heart to be the center of knowledge and understanding and thinking and wisdom. And the New Testament uses it that way. When we say, I invited Jesus into my heart, he's not living in this pump station in here. You're talking about, I've given my life. See, the heart refers to what we might call the real you. It's the real use where life's decisions are made. It's what you, it's how you live. The heart is the place where you decide what values you're going to live by and what direction you're going to go and what you're going to do with your life. How many times have you heard it say, just follow your heart? That's not really a smart thing to do. But every important decision you made is made by your heart and your heart has eyes. They can be open or shut. God, I want my eyes to be opened to what you want me to do. I want the light of your wisdom and revelation to show me what to do. Have you ever seen a stereogram? You know what I'm talking about? It, sometimes it's, it's a, it'll, it'll be on a piece of paper, it's ink on a page, and it doesn't even look like anything. You're going, what in the world is this? But if you stare at it long enough, you'll see another image in it. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you probably go, there's not anything in there. There is not anything in there, but you just have to keep staring at it and staring at it. And, and then eventually, your eyes will focus on some other image that pops off of that page. Just look it up sometime. They're a lot of fun sometime to look at. Well, 
in a way, we're saying, Lord, I want the eyes of my understanding and my heart to be what you want me to see. And when you look at this verse and all that Paul is talking about, you're going to go, wow, I'm beginning to see something that I haven't seen before. Have you ever been reading the scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminates something that you have not seen before? Open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my understanding. Open the eyes, wisdom. One translation says that the eyes of your heart might be flooded with light. Opening blind eyes is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. He and he alone can do it. That's why we pray for our children and our grandchildren and our family members and friends and loved ones who are far from God. God, open the eyes of their heart. Let them see where they're going. Let them see what they're doing. We cannot compel their obedience, but we can pray, we can pray that God will show them what to do and we can cry out to him. We've even sung a song here. It's open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. We want to see Jesus. That's what he's talking about. It's not a literal pumping heart with eyes on it. The seat of the emotions. It's the real you. That's who you are. Emotions and feelings were associated. It's interesting in those days, the emotions and feelings were, since, were associated with the intestines or the bowels. In Acts 1.18 or the Colossians 3.12, Philemon, 1 John 3.17, when, when your feelings are involved, it affects that part of you, doesn't it? Well, one cause of immaturity in the church at Corinth was they began to rely on their feelings instead of knowledge and the truth. Folks, we, we still have that problem today. Many believers are more interested in doing what feels right than doing what de God declares is right. And without being hateful, we've got to remember that even though we have empathy and sympathy for people whose lives are not right, God's word says there is a standard we've got to live by. And we pray for them, but many believers are more interested. In fact, in that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Oh, Corinthians, our heart is open wide, but you, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. He was basically saying, I can't take God's truth from my mind and give it to your minds because your emotions are in the way. And you don't want your emotions to get in the way. You want to know what God's truth is. First thing for, for which Paul prays is that believers would be enlightened about the greatness of God's plan. He calls it the hope of his calling in verse 18. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Think about it. God chose you. He's forgiven you. He's adopted you. He's redeemed you. 
He's forgiven. He's given you wisdom and insight. You have an inheritance. You have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He said, I want you to grasp all of that. So when somebody asks you how you're doing, all you have to do is say, I'm blessed. (laughs) You know, a lot of times we think, well, blessed means, well, I had something good financially happen to me today. I want to tell you, this has nothing to do with your finances, has nothing to do with your looks, has nothing to do with your feelings. You are a blessed, blessed person if you know Jesus. He also prayed for comprehension of God's power in verse 19. In verse 19, he uses four different Greek synonyms to emphasize the greatness of God's power. The first one, look at verse 19. And and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Now that word, power, the first one there in verse 19 is the word dunamis. Dynamo, dynamite, we get our word from that. It refers to inherent power residing in a thing by its own nature. Paul tells us that his power is exceeding great, which means more than enough power than you're ever going to need or want toward us who believe. Are you a believer? You believer in Christ? You've been given power. It's only available to a child of God. A lost person does not have this power. They can be religious, but they don't have any power in their life. The next word in verse 19 is the word working. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working? Energia. Energy refers to energy, speaking of the energizing power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to live for Christ every day. The word mighty is the word iskus, which speaks of ability, force, and strength. The power of God within us gives us supernatural ability, force, and strength. How can you forgive people that have offended you because of God's power in you? How can you love somebody that's hard to love? Because of God's power in you. And then the second word power is not the same one that's earlier in the verse. His, according to his mighty power is the word kratos. It speaks of dominion or great power and strength. The spirit of God gives us the ability to have dominion over our lives. He's given us power to overcome temptation, to give us the strength we need. And I want you to notice something. He did not pray for the believers to have this power. He prayed that they would be aware of the power they already have in God. You have it. Holy Spirit in you. You don't need to pray for power to witness or power to endure suffering. You don't have to pray for the power to do God's will. Holy Spirit in you already has given you that power. A lot of Christians try to function without that power. I read of a 747 was halfway across the Atlantic Ocean when the captain came on the loudspeaker and said, Passengers, 
I want your attention. We've lost one of our engines, but we can certainly reach London with the three we have left. Unfortunately, we'll arrive an hour late. About an hour later, the captain came on and said, sorry, we've lost another engine, but we can still travel on too. We're still going to arrive in London, but we're going to be four hours late. Not long after that, the captain said, well, guess what, folks? We've lost a third engine, but be assured we can fly with only one and we'll arrive in London eight hours late. And when the passenger said, well, for Pete's sake, if we lose another engine, we'll be up here all night. <laughs> well, a lot of Christians trying to fly with no power. I want you to notice something. Luke verse 20. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and carried him home to heaven is the power that's at work in your life. That's a whole new thought, isn't it? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Death conquering, life changing, resurrection power is at work in our lives at all time. You don't need more power. You need the wisdom to understand what God's already given you and allowing that power to dominate. Allowing the power of God to have control, submitting to his will, submitting to his, to his word. The same power that brought Jesus back from the dead will bring our bodies out of the grave one day. We're going to be resurrected one day with a new body. The same power that took Jesus home to heaven is going to take us home to heaven. Now, verses 21 to 23 talk about the Lord's glory, the, the words. You'll notice some words in there, principality and power and might and dominion. Those were traditional Jewish terms to designate the angel's rank. The point here is that the power of Christ applied in our own lives cannot be overthrown or negated or defeated because it surpasses that of the host of Satan and all of those ranks under him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The devil can't make you do anything. Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. He can't make a believer do anything. He cannot indwell a believer. Demons cannot indwell a believer. Obviously, people are influenced and people are tempted and, and so forth. But, but, you know, Satan can't make you do anything. He might harm you. I don't know what all he can do, but he can't make me by make me resist my own will because the Holy Spirit lives in me. If I resist, if I choose to go the wrong path, it's because I chose to do it. Christ is not only the, and, and you'll notice he's, that he mentions Christ being the head of the church 
and the head of all things, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head, but we are the body of Christ. We are the ones that, that give him the glory. The, the church, the people of God, are the people that are seen in this world of darkness to, to eliminate and to show people Jesus Christ. I know the Holy Spirit brings lost people to him, but he uses us and the testimony that we are and who we are. Listen, these Ephesians were living in a very pagan town. They didn't have good leadership. They didn't have good government. And they had all kinds of paganism and idolatry and immorality around them. But Paul said, you've got the power of Christ in you and the power of God in you. Realize who you are in Jesus Christ. Nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing will ever separate you from God's love. You've got direction and peace and guidance here on this earth. You know what life's about. The eyes of your heart have been opened to see the real issues of life and what the future's going to look like. And your future is secure. You have an inheritance waiting on you. It's a win-win for believers. Think about when people hear about what's going on, what do they say? I want them to say those people, they're just normal people, but they love Jesus. And there's something different about them because they love the Lord. And it makes people want to say, you know, I want to know, I want to know what you have. Because that power is shown when they go through sorrow. When we bury our loved ones. Yeah, we cry and we weep and we grieve and that's okay. We have a high priest who's acquainted with our grief. But we have hope, don't we? Because we know it's not the end becomes real and the Holy Spirit comforts us doesn't mean you won't cry doesn't mean you won't struggle doesn't mean that the, the grief's not real but the grief can you imagine having that grief with no hope I can't I can't imagine facing life without Christ and the reason is the eyes of my heart have been opened and I see what's important and all these other people out here that don't know Jesus they're in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age, which is Satan, little g, God of this age, has blinded the minds and the hearts, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. When we sing, we sing about we once were blind, but now we see. We once were lost, but now we're found. We once were slaves, but now we're free. We sing songs like I've seen the light and so forth. Anyway, 
I've, I've landed the plane. I'm about to take back off. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Don't you just love it when you hear people talk and you think there were about four times he could have landed that. It would have been great. So I've landed it. I'm going to stop. Let me lead us in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for how you've blessed us. May we never take it for granted. And on those difficult days when things don't seem to be going well, our circumstances may be tough. Help us to remember who we have living in us and what you have given us and the power that we have. And we're going to gather together on Sunday knowing that your power is what we need to see change the life of people. Thank you for your word that so illuminates our minds. Please keep the eyes of our hearts open to you. Thank you again for these wonderful folks, and I pray that you will bless them. Thank you for the privilege of being together here at Southcrest. In Jesus' name we pray, and we thank you, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Southcrest Wednesday Night Series featuring Senior Pastor David Wilson. Remember, you can also live stream our Sunday and Wednesday services. Go to southcrestlive.tv for more details or to southcrest.org to learn more about Southcrest Baptist Church. And thanks for listening.